Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Okay, guys, I hope you had a great weekend, and for some of you, I hope that you are benefiting from the extra holiday today. I apologize for only getting out three episodes last week with having to move book club from Wednesday to Thursday, traveling for my daughter's competition on Friday, it threw everything off. We are thankfully, however, back on track today and ready to start off with a Palmetto State Armory deal of the day. We haven't had a good AK Monday, so today it's back. I am proud to offer the PSA AKV. This was designed based on the Vityaz SN Russian submachine gun. It's a blowback operated system to ensure a smooth cycling action. Please visit the link in the show description to pick this one up today for only $949.99. Now, in what may seem like a trivial win, A federal judge in Florida ruled a U.S. law that prohibits people from having firearms in post offices to be unconstitutional. This is the latest court decision declaring gun restrictions violate the Constitution. Shocker, I know. That whole shall not be infringed line. I just can't imagine how anyone didn't understand that. The U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizzle, 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 Mizzle. I don't know, cited the 2022 Supreme Court ruling, New York v. Bruin, that expanded gun rights. It didn't expand them. It just reinstated them. The 2022 ruling recognized the individual's right to bear a handgun in public for self-defense. The judge shared her decision in the indictment that charged Emmanuel Ayala, Ayala? U.S. Postal Service truck driver with illegal possession of a firearm in a federal building. The judge did not dismiss Ayala's separate charge of resisting arrest, but did note that the firearm charge violated his Second Amendment rights, saying it is incongruent with the American tradition of firearms regulations. If they hadn't been trying to arrest him for exercising his natural-born rights, he would not have had the displeasure of resisting arrest. So you could say that charge is void. A blanket restriction on firearms possession in post offices is incongruent with the American tradition of firearms regulation, she wrote. Ayala's indictment came after prosecutors stated he brought a gun onto the Postal Service property. He fled the location in 2022 after federal agents attempted to detain him and was eventually by the Tampa Police Department detained. Ayala had a concealed weapons permit, but was charged under a statute prohibiting having firearms in federal facilities. He carried a 9mm Smith & Wesson handgun for self-defense. The judge said that post offices have existed since the nation's foundation and that the federal law did not forbid carrying firearms into post offices until 1972. She added that restrictions on the grounds of admittance would abridge the right to bear arms by regulating it into practical non-existence, one by one, 
may these unconstitutional laws fall until we get to the final domino that is the NFA and the GCA and repeal them completely. Today is a big day if you care about the 2024 election cycle. The presidential election begins in Iowa today as Republicans stage their caucuses. This is a different process as opposed to the traditional primary election. Republican and Democrat caucuses actually work differently also. Democrats actually made changes after the 2020 election where now they will meet for conduct of political business, but their choice for president will be made by mail and announced later. That seems totally legit, by the way. (laughs) Republicans, however, still will proceed as usual. This means that participants gather in each precinct, usually a school, community center, similar type venue, at 8 Eastern Monday evening. Eligible voters who must be registered Republicans, but you can register the day of, FYI, check into their caucuses and start discussing candidates and issues with their neighbors. Some people even stand and speak on behalf of the candidates. Within an hour or so, the caucus goers write their choice of candidate on a slip of paper and hand it to the chair of the caucus, who then tallies the votes and submits them to the state party. The state party counts and releases the results, usually within a few hours. Each precinct is then assigned a number of delegates based on the results. Ultimately, 40 delegates from Iowa will go to the RNC where the presidential nominee for the party is chosen. In terms of the presidential race, the persons with the most votes wins, quote-unquote, Iowa. In practice, delegates to a state convention are awarded on a proportionate basis, so everyone wins in a way. Some Iowa Democrats and independents, though, are planning on crashing the state's Republican caucuses and become Republicans for a day to vote for Nikki Haley, but mostly against Donald Trump. It's unclear how many will show up, but, quote, crossover voting is a low-key tradition in Iowa's caucuses, and it's one of the big unknowns heading into Monday, along with the weather. And if you're uh, Laura Loomer, you think the weather is being controlled by opposition forces. (laughs) Iowa allows day of party registration, as I stated before, for voters and Democrats, as I also said before, are not holding an in-person presidential caucus this year. That's given mischievous anti-Trump voters a chance to diminish Trump's inevitability. Lyle Hansen, a Republican precinct captain for Haley in Cedar Rapids, acknowledges there could be a good crossover vote for Haley because Democrats get to come over and pick the candidate for Biden to oppose. Crossover voters are highly unlikely to help Haley catch Trump, who's consistently had a big lead in Iowa polls. GOP strategist David Kokel says that if crossovers see Haley as the best Republican alternative to Trump, they could help her finish a solid second in Iowa, ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's some risk for Iowa's Democratic Party if many of its members cross over to vote with Republicans. People who switch parties to participate in a caucus sometimes don't switch back. If Haley benefits from crossover voters, it could feed into Trump's claims that Democrats are helping to prop up her campaign. 
Trump senior advisor Chris Lasivata brushed aside any concerns about crossover voters aiding Haley. If that's something they're relying on to get through the night, then poor people, I feel bad for them. Haley campaign spokesperson Olivia Perez Cubas countered that Haley is a tried and true conservative who's working to earn every vote. On the campaign trail, Haley frequently cites polls that suggest as many as 75% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch in November. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections, Perez Cuba says. There's nothing to be proud of. The Republican Party should be a story of addition. It's kind of hard to be the party of addition when Nikki Haley is cheering on people who want to abort their unborn children, but what do I know? Don't sleep on Vivek Ramaswamy. He's traveled to every district, not once, but twice, to campaign and earn votes. Midwesterners do appreciate effort. Iowa caucus is also not a big predictor for nominee or president. The last Republican to win the caucus and go on to win the nomination was Donald Trump in 2020, but the last Republican caucus winner to go on and become president was George W. Bush in 2000, so 20 years ago, 24 years ago. On the Democrat side, it was Barack Obama in 2008. Iowa results are expected around 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1,215 delegates are needed to win the nomination. You can bet I'll be keeping a close eye on the results, and I will keep you guys posted. Between the virtue signaling of an all-female engineering team at an airline that is mysteriously losing doors off their aircraft, or all-female flight crews, DEI is being shoved down your throat like the milk porn meme. I'm here to tell you, that it has, in fact, gotten worse. The Federal Aviation Administration is actively recruiting workers who, quote, suffer from severe intellectual disabilities, psychiatric problems, and other mental and physical conditions under a diversity and inclusion hiring initiative spelled out on the agency's website. Targeted disabilities are those disabilities that the federal government, as a matter of policy, has identified for special emphasis in recruiting and hiring. They include hearing, vision, missing extremities, partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disability, psychiatric disability, and dwarfism. Listen, I got a guy that can help you out. He seems to have a proclivity for locating just the type of individual. I'm sure he can be temporarily contracted to headhunt the very best options for you to choose from. The initiative is part of the FAA's Diversity and Inclusion Hiring Plan, which claims diversity is integral to achieving FAA's mission of ensuring safe and efficient travel across our nation and beyond. The FAA's website shows the agency's guidelines on diversity hiring were last updated on March 23rd of 2022, the FAA, which is overseen by Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Department of Transportation, is a government agency charged with regulating civil aviation 
and employs roughly 45,000 people. All eyes have been on the FAA and airline industry in recent days after a plug door on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 blew out during an Alaska Airlines flight on January 5th. We covered that here on the show before. The FAA grounded all 737 MAX 9 planes after the incident and is carrying out a, quote, extensive inspection and maintenance work. The FAA added it would increase its oversight of Boeing following the incident, including auditing Boeing's 737 MAX 9 jetliner production line and companies that supply parts to the airline manufacturer. Following the incident, social media commenters and public figures have charged that airlines and airline manufacturers' emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives has made flying less safe. Do you want to fly in an airplane where they prioritize DEI hiring over your safety? Tech billionaire Elon Musk wrote on X, that's actually happening. The DEI rot in the airline industry is way worse than you think, Daily Wire commentator Matt Walsh wrote in an op-ed last week. Critics of such commentary have pushed back on the argument that prioritizing DEI has made traveling less safe with civic rights, civil rights groups slamming Musk, for example, for the abhorrent and pathetic tweet. Yeah, but is it true? On the FAA's website, the agency claims that people with severe mental and physical disabilities are the most underrepresented segment of the federal workforce because diversity is so critical. Diversity, not safety, not competence, not capability, not merit, but diversity. The FAA actively supports and engages in a variety of associations, programs, coalitions, and initiatives to support and accommodate employees from diverse communities and backgrounds. Backgrounds like aviation, right? Our people are our strength, and we take great care in investing in and valuing them as such, the FAA. FAA states, when asked for a comment on the initiative, including what roles people with disabilities would fulfill, the FAA told them that the agency thoroughly seeks and vets qualified candidates from as many sources as possible for a range of positions. So in other words, they couldn't answer the fucking question. The FAA employs tens of thousands of people for a wide range of positions from administrative roles to oversight and execution of critical safety functions. Like many large employers, the agency proactively seeks qualified candidates from as many sources as possible, all of whom must meet rigorous qualifications that, of course, will vary by position. Uh, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, chairman, yeah, I said that name correctly, and it really is that bad. Do no harm, a group of healthcare professionals, medical students, and policymakers working to, quote, protect healthcare from a radical, divisive, and discriminatory ideology, said that similar to the medical field, the aviation industry has an obligation to protect its travelers. Unfortunately, Goldfarb said, identity politics is creating opportunities for so-called oppressed groups by lowering standards for entry into those fields 
and thereby endangering the safety of those which it's designed to serve. Some endeavors simply do not lend themselves to identity politics, he added. The FAA's website outlines that some managers can hire disabled people and veterans through an on-the-spot hiring process, providing required documentation is submitted. The FAA also details that employees with disabilities will be provided reasonable accommodation on the job. So not only is there a lack of qualification, the job will be modified for accommodations for someone who can't do the job as it is. I will wholeheartedly admit that I did not see this one coming. This is not how I was raised. I don't feel like my father prepared me for a world where you just get what you want if you check as many boxes as possible, where hard work, effort, and expertise mean absolutely nothing if you happen to be interviewing next to someone who is severely mentally or physically disabled. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Sunday indicated the proposed government funding bill will head to the Senate floor on Tuesday, just four days ahead of Friday's looming shutdown deadline. Oh, good. Another huge bill spending trillions of taxpayer dollars that no one has had an opportunity to read will be passed, and Republicans will call it a win because they'll get some sort of earmarks for their pet projects in their district and the American taxpayer will be left holding the bag on more bullshit like treadmill walking cats on cocaine. He said, today I'm urging Congress to act quickly and avoid the shutdown. I'm announcing I will put on the floor of the Senate legislation this Tuesday that will keep the government open, Schumer said during a press conference, and I hope we get strong bipartisan support for that legislation. Schumer lambasted those from the hard right flank, whom he claims want to force a shutdown. A shutdown is the wrong thing to do, Schumer said. A majority of Democrats and Republicans don't want a shutdown, but there's a group, a hard right group, particularly in the House, some in the Senate, who want to bully their way into forcing a shutdown. That cannot happen. Congressional leaders over the weekend struck a deal to avert a government shutdown, agreeing on a two-step stopgap bill that would set new funding deadlines on March 1st and March 7th, sources familiar with the matter said. The deal came less than a week before the first funding deadline on January 19th. The second deadline is on February 2nd. The proposal, if approved by Friday night, by the House and Senate would allow both chambers more time to approve the 12 appropriations bills, while the top-line spending numbers for those bills were announced last weekend. More time is needed to work on the particulars of each funding bill. Schumer on Sunday said he's urging members of both sides to, quote, stand up to the bullies on the hard right to avoid a government shutdown and avoid the pain. Stand up to bullies. So the American people are bullies now for expecting financial literacy and budget management? We need strong bipartisan support in the House and Senate to prevent the shutdown to overcome a band of MAGA extremists who somehow, in some dark thinking, think a shutdown would be good for America and the American people, he said. Strong bipartisan support 
is the three worst words in political language, I have decided. If you are all agreeing, you're the only people this shit is going to benefit. Conservative House Republicans have typically been against stopgap legislation and GOP leadership striking deals with Democrats. A two-step approach, however, was used last November and was favored by House GOP members who saw it as a way to avoid a whole-of-government omnibus funding bill in December. House Speaker Mike Johnson in November pledged not to put another stopgap bill on the floor, but last week he confirmed he was not ruling out anything as the deadline approaches. Johnson floated the idea of a long-term continuing resolution last week to a group of moderate Republicans who nearly all said no to the suggestion. One attendee previously said, Schumer on Sunday listed off a series of potential issues caused by a shutdown and added Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is in agreement that a government shutdown should be avoided. Text of the continuing resolution is expected to be posted online Sunday evening, according to a spokesperson, but as of recording and writing, It has not yet been posted. I will share it online tomorrow when I get my hands on it. North Korea launched its first provocative missile test of the year Sunday, firing a suspected intermediate-range ballistic explosive that reportedly could hit U.S. targets in the region. The totalitarian government's military flexing came two months after Pyongyang said it's tested engines for a new long-range stealth missile. A South Korea assessment suggested that Sunday's projectile, which flew 620 miles into the Sea of Japan, could have been the type of solid fuel engine missile that the North said it tested in November. The missile is designed to potentially hit U.S. military bases in Guam, roughly 2,100 miles away, and could also be used to attack U.S. installations on Okinawa in Japan said a missile expert at the Korea Research Institute for Naval Strategy, National Strategy, in Seoul. It's going to hit bases in Guam. It might turn it upside down. I'll never forget that. It might tip over. Japan's analysis differed with its defense officials saying the missile traveled only 300 miles, meaning it could have been short range and not intermediate range. The North's existing intermediate-range missile runs on a liquid fuel engine, which must be fueled before launch, doesn't last long, and is easier to detect. It also has a solid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile that was tested last month that's designed to strike North America. Experts believe the North Koreans could use the missile test to influence critical elections in South Korea, and the United States this year. Kim is believed to want South Korean liberals to defeat conservative President Yoon Suk-yeol and is rooting for frenemy Donald Trump to win a second non-consecutive term in hopes of earning more concessions. President Biden, who is running for re-election, warned Kim in December that any nuclear attacks on the U.S. or its allies in the region would be met with a swift, overwhelming and decisive response. Washington has expressed profound concerns about North Korea's increasing military cooperation with Russia, saying it has evidence Moscow has been using missiles 
provided by Pyongyang in its nearly two-year-old unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, providing the North with technical and military insights. Experts believe that North Korea may now be ramping up its provocative stance as much of the Western world turns its attention towards Israel in Gaza. North Korea should really have no fear of that, though, as Joe Biden has grown frustrated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as they have not spoken in 20 days, as the president's patience has reportedly run out with the nonstop bombing of Gaza. Not because of the deaths, though, because it's hurting his re-election campaign. Since the October 7th attack by Hamas, Biden has given the Israel administration his full support, but is reportedly now angry with the prime minister because he keeps rejecting his proposals. The two last spoke on December 23rd when Netanyahu rejected Biden's request that Israel release Palestinian tax revenues, and an angry Biden ended the phone call saying, this conversation is over. At every juncture, Netanyahu has given Biden the finger. They're pleading with the Netanyahu coalition, but getting slapped in the face over and over again. The long period of silence is unusual, as the pair had previously spoken almost every other day since October. John Kirby has downplayed the situation, telling reporters the decrease in communication doesn't say anything about the state of the relationship. This is the same John Kirby who didn't know the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized for four days, so I'm hesitant to trust him to know anything. The main issue of contention is Netanyahu's refusal to comply with U.S. strategic priorities in the Israel-Hamas war. Biden believes Israel isn't doing enough to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. He's also frustrated by Netanyahu's refusal to seriously discuss plans for the post-war landscape and his rejection of the United States' proposal for the Palestinian Authority to have a role in determining the outcomes. U.S. officials are concerned Israel will not wind down its bombardment of Gaza in January, as was promised. If they fail to meet their timetable to transition to lower-intensity operations, it will be hard for Biden to justify maintaining the same level of support for their campaign. In the weeks after the October 7th attack, Israel's military has responded with an unprecedented military campaign in Gaza, displacing 90% of the population and killing more than 20,000 people. Secretary of State Tony Blinken visited Israel last week but failed to make headway with Netanyahu. Prime Minister agreed to allow a UN mission to enter northern Gaza, but refused his other demands. Blinken told Netanyahu that their plans for after the war were pie in the sky, and that no Arab country is going to bail them out if they don't allow the Palestinian Authority to have a role in the rebuilding of Gaza. Okay, I don't like war. It's awful. It's brutal and frequently not as black and white as people would like to make it out to be. However, I don't know why anyone thinks that they have a right to tell Netanyahu how to respond or handle the situation. It's his women and young girls that were raped, murdered, and paraded through town, 
his children that were slaughtered and baked in ovens, his men that were dragged from their families and shot in their yards, and now you want him to cede to the very organization that sanctioned the violence against his people? He's not going to go for that, and it's probably pretty foolish to even ask. But I'm just a mom in Indiana. What do I know? In other Biden administration shortcomings, two U.S. Navy SEALs are missing after conducting a nighttime boarding mission Thursday off the coast of Somalia, according to three U.S. officials. The SEALs were on an interdiction mission, climbing up a vessel when one got knocked off by high waves. Under their protocol, when one SEAL is overtaken, the next jumps in after them. Both SEALs are still missing. A search and rescue mission is underway. The waters in the Gulf of Aden, where they were operating, are warm, two of the U.S. officials said. The U.S. Navy has conducted regular interdiction missions where they've intercepted weapons on ships that were bound for Houthi-controlled Yemen. The mission was not related to Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is the ongoing U.S. and international mission to provide protection to commercial vessels in the Red Sea or the retaliatory strikes the United States and the United Kingdom have conducted in Yemen over the past couple days. It was also not related to the seizure of the oil tanker, St. Nicholas, by Iran, a third U.S. official said. In a statement Saturday, U.S. Central Command said that the search and rescue operations are currently ongoing to locate the two sailors. The command said it would not release additional information on the Thursday night incident until the personnel recovery mission is complete. The sailors were forward deployed to the U.S. 5th Fleet area of operations supporting a wide variety of missions. You're going to conduct these missions. Why at this point with the level of technology that we have in a watch, in an air tag, something, why do we not have some sort of like GPS tracking on, on people like this that are conducting these missions? I don't know. And while the show is running a little long today, I do apologize. I wanted to touch on this before I end today. Tomorrow on January 17th, the World Economic Forum is planning to hold a panel at its upcoming annual meeting labeled, quote, Preparing for Disease X. As the World Health Organization claims the unknown disease could cause 20 times more fatalities than the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the World Economic Forum's website, the panel of speakers for Preparing for Disease X will include World Health Organization Director General Tedros and Hanam Gebrusius, something shit I can't say, Brazil Minister of Health Nicia Trindade Lima, Shyam Bishan for the Center for Health and Healthcare, and multiple healthcare executives. Uh, why can't these people have names like Nathan Smith or just so like something easy <laughs> for me to be able to say? The summary of the Preparing for Disease X panel states, quote, with fresh warnings from the World Health Organization that an unknown disease X could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic, what novel efforts are needed to prepare 
healthcare systems for the multiple challenges ahead. The World Economic Forum's website notes that the panel discussion is connected to both the Collaborative Surveillance Initiative, Collaborative Working Together Surveillance Initiative, and the Partnership for Health Systems Sustainability of the World Economic Forum. On its website, the World Health Order states, I'm sorry, World Health Organization. It might as well be World Health Order. It's like the, (laughs) I'm thinking like Star Wars at this point. Oh my God, I need to go to bed. States Disease X represents the knowledge that a serious international epidemic could be caused by a pathogen currently unknown to cause human disease. Dr. Richard Hatchett, who serves as the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, previously claimed that while Disease X might sound like science fiction, the disease is something we must prepare for. What disease? The World Health Order lists Disease X as one of the top priority diseases for research and development. Like, is Disease X already, like, sitting out there and we're just, like, watching it? Like, I I don't understand. The way that they're talking about this, it's like, They've already come up with the disease and now they've just got to figure out how to like manage the disease once they unleash it on the entire world. That's what this sounds like to me at this point. The organization considers diseases a top priority if the diseases pose the greatest public health risk due to their epidemic potential and or whether or not there is no or insufficient countermeasures. That I think this is the point where they're going to make the decision to have a, a global response to disease X. So, where essentially the World Health Order then has more control or power over other nation states that are part of that organization. So, just be on the lookout for that. So, in addition to the Iowa caucuses, we also have this great meeting with the World Economic Forum that everyone loves so much. That is your Monday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I love you guys. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Take care. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.